of God. Father, we have been singing truths that ring to the depth of our being. We sing hallelujah, we say hallelujah, because Lord, we have good news. And we rejoice in you, our God, and that you have shown to us in the demonstration of Jesus Christ's victory over the grave, that there is hope in this broken world that we live in. There is hope beyond the grave. There is hope for sinners that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. And I pray, Father, that you might empower my feeble words, and I pray that your Spirit might apply the words, of, the Word of God to the hearts of all of us gathered here today, and that, Lord, we might ourselves have the gospel, the good news, minister to each one of us and apply to us in such a way that we leave this morning impacted by that truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Perhaps you have heard of Raymond Roth. Last summer, Raymond Roth faked his own drowning at Jones Beach. He deliberately left his wallet, of course minus his driver's license, but he left his wallet on the beach and then he left that beach, got in his car, drove away, and sometime later, his son reported that him missing, claiming that his father had gone for a swim in the surf. And so after an extensive and expensive search, his body was never found, of course, and he was presumed to be drowned. Of course, the scheme fell apart only a couple days later, actually, when Raymond's wife noticed and found some emails that had been exchanged between his son and Raymond, and eventually, of course, it was found that he was in Florida, staying at a timeshare. Eventually, he came back to Long Island, and of course, the saga continues on, and we heard about him this week, again, claiming to be somebody he wasn't. Anyway, the motive, of course, in all of that, why would anyone fake their death? Motive, of course, was to collect $400,000 in life insurance policy. Now, I say that to say this. People do indeed fake their own deaths. It happens. But I got a question for you. What about faking a resurrection? What would it take to pull off a faked resurrection? Well, you say, well, you'd have to have some help, right? If you're truly dead, right? You've got to die first if you're going to somehow have a resurrection, but you're going to fake the resurrection, so somehow maybe you really didn't die, or, you know, all these variables. It's really, uh, well, let's suppose you did die. you still got to have some help to somehow remove the dead body. The, the dead bodies are really, they, they, you know, it, it will quickly stifle any kind of thought that you've somehow raised from the dead. You might make it appear that you have risen from the dead if there's no body. But let me tell you something. Jesus of Nazareth, his death and his resurrection are real facts of history. And what we read in the gospel accounts 
has no sense, no element at all of any faking going on. It has a credibility, it has a sense of believability, the more you read it, that there's no faking going on of any kind at all when it comes to Jesus' resurrection. The witness testimony and the corroborating irrefutable evidence ruled out any kind of staged or faked death and subsequent resurrection. Jesus' death, by way of crucifixion, first of all, it was a real death. There's no question here that Jesus didn't really die. After six hours of suffering incredibly on a cross, Roman soldiers pierced his side with a spear rather than breaking his legs because they realized what? He's dead. There's no need to break his legs, which they did with other people in order to encourage and promote death. The religious authorities knew that Jesus had predicted his resurrection from the dead, and so they requested and they were granted a contingent of Roman soldiers who were placed and to stand guard right outside of that sealed tomb. The disciples of Jesus obviously did not conspire to steal his dead body in order to fake some resurrection because they themselves did not believe the initial reports which were given to them that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And and furthermore, they would never, ever have somehow died as martyrs for the sake of Christ insisting on Jesus' resurrection if his dead body they knew existed somewhere and somebody had stashed it somewhere, it would have eventually been brought to light. Nobody is dumb enough to die for a lie. Think about it. And so they had no financial incentive at all. Jesus lived a life of poverty. There was no financial incentive at all to somehow fake his resurrection. Jesus' followers did not initially believe that he was actually alive. That is such a key element here. You've got to understand that. Women who go out on the first day of the week expecting to do what? Anoint a dead body. So they go right back to that tomb. And when they saw the stone rolled away, there's no dead body, they assumed what? A gardener must have stolen it. Nobody's thinking resurrection. Eleven disciples discounted the evidence that was presented to them. Even a one week later, a full one week later after the event, they needed to be persuaded and convinced that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. Now, as I've read through the gospel accounts one more time, I've noticed this amazing thing, and this is what I want to focus on this morning. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to and spoke and interacted with and shared meals with his followers. And during those encounters with the living, resurrected Son of God, the Gospels record that indeed he had been raised from the dead, he was spending time with them in that way, he had a body, he ate food, he was with them, they touched him, But it was during that time that Jesus took specific measures to ground his followers, to ground those who had heard his teaching for years and years. He wanted to ground them in the gospel before he left to go back to the Father. And I want to invite you this morning to have your Bibles there in front of you and to look at some of these passages. We're not going to be able to look at them and read them extensively, 
I want to consider three examples this morning. Three examples of Jesus applying the gospel of his death and resurrection to the hearts of his followers in his resurrection ministry. Let's begin with Luke 24, page 1257 in your pew Bible. In this passage, beginning in verse 13, again, this is after Jesus has been raised from the dead, according to the gospel writers. A fellow named Cleopas and another disciple were walking toward and away from the city of Jerusalem, a town that's about seven miles away, people estimate. Now, this is on the day that Jesus was raised from the dead, reputedly, and they had heard reports of Jesus' resurrection, but they discounted these reports. And so as the men are walking along, they're discussing the events of the day and the recent days that this Jesus Christ had been put to death by a crucifixion. They had the reports they're hearing of his coming back to life. And yet, as they're walking along, their hearts are sorely disappointed. They are downcast. They are confused. And they're not in good shape. Their understanding of the Hebrew prophets led them to expect a different outcome. (laughs) If Jesus was the true Messiah, they're thinking, it made no sense that he would be crucified at the hands of Gentile Roman soldiers. Crucified as a cursed man. That makes no sense to them in their understanding of what they had read of the Hebrew Scriptures. And their assumptions left them with this fog that was all around their their thinking that day. They couldn't make sense of that. They were confused. And they're baffled. And because of that confusion, their hopes have been dashed. They were expecting something entirely to happen differently. And they're filled with all kinds of discouragement and dismay. Now, to these men... And to the other 11 apostles, I must add, look at verse 11 of chapter 24. Jesus' death and his resurrection was merely nonsense. Nonsense, that's the word. A fable, something that must have been just not even real. That's the way they're initially thinking about this particular account. Now, what I want you to notice in this account in chapter 24 of Luke is Jesus' response to these two particular men. In his resurrection body, Jesus draws near to them. And as they're walking along, he walks right along beside them. And he asks them questions. Now, he knows full well what's going on. But he's asking questions to draw out of these men to help them clarify exactly what is going on in their thinking and in their belief system. And so he's bringing to light the assumptions which have led them to this discouraged demeanor. And after hearing their understanding of the Bible, and they realized that they did not leave any room in their understanding for a crucified Messiah to atone for the sins of God's people, Jesus brought clarity. Jesus brought understanding by what? Expounding the scriptures to them. Look at verse 27. Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to these two men 
the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now, point number one, I want you to catch this. The best remedy for spiritual confusion, the best remedy for spiritual discouragement, the best remedy for a heart that is downcast and depressed is clear, thorough, biblical instruction. Because distorted hearts, hearts that have become dismayed and hearts that have become depressed are hearts that don't understand truth and have not applied that truth to their lives. And so I find it fascinating that Jesus took this one key moment here and he pointed these men to text after text of the Scriptures. Oh, wish could have been there. Would have been awesome to hear Jesus unpack the Scriptures to these two men. And he's trying to help them understand the bigger picture of what's God's plan. What has just unfolded is the plan of God. They couldn't see it. They didn't understand it. And what they were assuming was that what has occurred clearly couldn't have been God's plan, therefore we're depressed, and therefore what? We're left to interpret the world by our human wisdom. And they're left with a sense of confusion and bafflement, and ultimately, I would say, serious discouragement of heart. Look at verse 26. Jesus went on to explain to them, It was necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things, including the death on the cross. That's what he's saying there. These things means the cross. The death on the cross. And to enter into his glory. Note this. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ are not optional to the Christian faith. They are not just some add-on that you can somehow buy extra. They are the essence of the Christian faith. You see, the historical events function as the essential. These historical events, the resurrection of Christ and his crucifixion, they serve and function as the essential bedrock to Christianity. For example, if you were to go shopping for a car, what is one of the things that everybody who goes shopping for a car always does? You always open the door, you get in, you look at all the little gadgets, right? You ask a couple questions, you kick the tires, and then what do you do? You open the hood, and you just make sure, is there an engine in this car? You don't want to buy a car that doesn't have an engine, right? It's not really a car. It would be heavy paperweight or something. I don't know. It could be a trophy or a statue you could put in your yard, but it's not a car if it doesn't have an engine. Same thing is true in Christianity. Apart from the resurrection, apart from the crucifixion of Christ, you do not have the Christian faith. It is the essence. It is the key core. It is the crux of the Christian faith. And that's why these men clearly were confused. And Jesus set them straight. How did he do it? Well, he didn't sit there and lecture them and berate them. He what? Showed them the Word. Taught them the Word. Explained the Word. May I just say to you that no one ever becomes a Christian. No one ever makes progress in spiritual maturity as a Christian apart from believing in and fully trusting in the crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ, 
as presented in the Bible. You see, the disciples needed to understand a very important principle. The Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. That what was happening on that cross was absolutely essential for the plan of God to unfold as God had predicted it would. And so discipleship, my friend, it means a life of learning. And for some of us, we don't like to learn. We like to assume we know. I don't need to learn anything. I am already know what I know and believe what I believe, and my mind's made up. May I suggest to you that Christian discipleship involves coming to the awareness that you don't know much at all about God's plan unless you study and have your mind and your heart informed as to what the plan of God is. And the only, to do, only way to do that is to invest in studying and examining and carefully reading and, and reflecting on and studying the Word of God. It's the only way you'll ever make sense of God's plan of what's happening in the world. And that there's a true God, He's revealed Himself in the person of Jesus Christ, who died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried, and was raised again on the third day. And He's coming again. If we rely on what makes sense to us based on our human wisdom, we will never, ever know the benefits of the true gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified for our sins, buried, and the third day raised from the dead. Look at verse 32. Luke summarizes for us the impact of Jesus' brief exchange and his Biblical lesson, if you will, alongside the road there as they walked along. Look at 32 as the men described to others what they thought when they were with Jesus. It says, their hearts burned within them while Jesus was opening the scriptures to them. I love that. I love that. What they're saying is that they understood God's plan. It resonated with them. It made sense. They began to own it. It began to truly impact them. They bought it. And they began to sense, wow, I've got a sense of the picture of what God is doing. And now, I say, see clearly, it's impacting my heart. They were set free from confusion. And they immediately began to understand the implications of the gospel. They're no longer feeling depressed, discouraged, and weighed down with a sense of, oh man, our hopes are dashed. Now they have a hope. Because why? Because Christ brought them the Word and explained it and helped them see what the Scriptures teach the big picture of God's plan in Christ. Their faith was grounded no longer in their own human wisdom. Their faith was now grounded in the truth of God's Word. No longer were they overwhelmed by doubt, discouragement. They enthusiastically sought to convince other people now, including the other disciples, that Jesus' resurrection indeed was true. We will never know true joy, true peace, and true hope, apart from having our minds transformed by the biblical truth. Truth about the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. They are to be studied, they are to be pondered, 
they are to be reflected upon because it's, for, it's in those significant redemptive events in the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. It is in those events that we find power. Power to transform our lives. Power to change us. Power to live a new life. Power that would indeed enable us to forgive other people and to know and experience the forgiveness from God. It is power that would also help us to love other people, which we can't and don't do in our own strength. It is also power to enable us to be able to have hope in the midst of things that look extremely depressing and hopeless and despairing. Because, my friend, if you study the gospel and you understand the cross, it will enable you to have tremendous insights into the reality of suffering in this world because it's always linked to resurrection. And so you ask the question, am I a disciple of Christ? You say, well, yeah, I'm a disciple, but man, I sure am depressed. I just walk around every day, mope around saying, oh, man. There's nothing good going on in this world. My friend, let me say, suggest something to you. If the Word of God is not the foundation of your true understanding of God's plan, and you are not keeping in front of you the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, then guess what? You need to spend some time listening to Jesus lay out the whole map for you in the Word of God. That's what it means to be a disciple. I got two other points. I got to keep moving. Okay, number two. Look at uh, John chapter 20. Just skip over some verses there, page 1291. I'm not really taking the time to read all these verses, I'm sorry, but uh, I'm assuming that I'm trying to summarize what happens in these accounts, but I encourage you to read them later. <clears throat> John 20, verse 19 and following. Here we have, on the evening of the day that Jesus rose from the dead, we're told in John 20 that some of the followers of Jesus were gathered in the upper room, and... In the gathering together, they are obviously terrified. They are frightened of the fact that the religious authorities who have pulled off this amazing uh, 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 distortion of any kind of justice for Jesus and put him to death, they're afraid they're going to be arrested. They, they could easily be also have the similar kind of outcome. And so they've got the doors locked, and they're all sitting there together. Well, let me back up. They're not all sitting there together. There's only ten of them now on this particular occasion. One is dead, Judas. He hung himself. And then you also have Thomas, verse 24. He's nowhere to be found. So you've got ten guys there, and despite the eyewitness testimony that Jesus' body is no longer in the grave, in the grave where it had been buried, and the claims of some who have seen him alive, Thomas was not having any part of it. His skeptical heart was not persuaded at all by the testimony of others. And so Thomas remained unconvinced. And more than likely, he could not get past, I think, and this is my conjecture here, I think he couldn't get past the horror of a crucified Messiah. The shame and the disgrace, the disfigurement of those nails being driven into his hands and in his feet, to have seen that spear shoved into the side of the Messiah? Verse 25. It's 
So he's holding out. He says, I can't believe it. I'm not going to believe this really happened, and I'm not going to surrender myself to a Messiah like that. I don't care if you say he's alive or not. So Thomas is hesitant to devote his life. He's hesitant to devote his service to someone whose death was so repugnant and scandalous. So he insisted. He's not going to believe unless he actually touches those wounds of a resurrected master. I would suggest to you that what we have here in Thomas is not confusion. In Thomas, we have a person who's filled with doubt. He's a struggling with doubt. And some of you may indeed have doubts about the Christian faith. It's not surprising. Many people have, including Thomas. You're not alone. Like Thomas, you refuse to check your mind at the door of a church and to somehow uncritically accept whatever other people assert to be true. Well, I want you to notice in the account here that eight days after that event we just described, the day that Jesus rose from the dead and then appeared to his disciples that evening, eight days later, we got the upper room, same location. We've got Jesus appearing again in that upper room. And this time, guess who's there? we got 11 guys this time. We've got Thomas there. And Jesus welcomes Thomas. And he approaches Thomas in a sense of encouraging him to investigate and examine the evidence for himself. Look at verse 27. Examine the evidence for himself. Verse 27. Reach here your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it in my side. And don't be unbelieving, but believing. I love that. I love the way Jesus approached him. There's not the wagging of the finger. There's not the putting him in his place. None of that. Just saying, okay, stop unbelieving, believe. Look at the evidence, touch. So point number two here I notice, as I look at Jesus and his ministry of the gospel here with Thomas, he extended to him personal, patient persuasion to a pessimistic, skeptical heart. No long lecture, no strong rebuke here. Jesus, I'm convinced, and I think this is a wonderful reminder, Jesus welcomes doubters. Jesus welcomes doubters. He does not insist that skeptics somehow sweep their doubts under the rug and blindly take a leap of faith. That's not what it means to follow Jesus. He beckons them to come, examine the evidence. Examine the evidence. What do you do with doubt when you experience doubt? Do you just quit and say, well, I'm stuck in my doubt? Or do you look for and find your way through it? Several weeks ago, uh, my wife and I were uh, in this part two of our sabbatical. And so we're transitioning from Indiana. We're going to Pennsylvania. We had directions. We had specific places of where we needed to go. And so we're driving along. We get to the road that we were looking for. And where we need. Now we're going to sort of find the place that where the house that we're going to be staying is located. It's at the uh, Missionary Retreat Fellowship, which is what it's called. They have like eight or nine homes there, so we were going to rent one of those homes. So we're going down the road. We have the right, correct road. We go down the road. It's nighttime. We can't really see too well. It's snow all over the place. And so we go all the way to the end of the road, come to the end of the road, and we realize 
We didn't see it. The guy told us to look for this. I didn't see it. Did you see it? No, I don't see it. We're left with doubt. Are we in the right? Did you see it? What? Are we in the right plot here? So, do we? Did we? Now I ask you. Did, if you were in that situation, we just say, well, let's park the car beside here in this figure. There must not be any place to stay. Would that be the conclusion you would have drawn? Well, let me assure you. We got on the cell phone. We got, hey, where is this place? Oh. When that narrow little bridge is, there's a sign off the road. Couldn't see the sign off the road in the dark. And there's the road up the hill. Voila, there was our house. Thank God. Now the point is this. If you're experiencing doubt about some element in the Christian faith, do you just stay in the doubt and stay there, or do you move toward finding further evidence, further truth, further insights that help you get to the destination that is the truth? So here in this text, I think it's fascinating that Thomas, along with others who have doubted, can find a wealth of objective, compelling evidence for the Christian faith. Jesus invites all of us to carefully and earnestly examine that evidence. And if Jesus was not raised from the dead, let's think that through for a moment. If he wasn't raised from the dead, then whatever preaching about the gospel, it's vain, it's worthless, empty, of no value at all. And whatever faith someone may say they have in Christianity, it's vain and worthless. That's what Paul said. But notice that the risen Christ patiently was waiting for Thomas to examine the evidence, move toward the full belief and trust in him. And I would say to you, be careful here. Don't evaluate entirely and the Christian faith only on looking at other people who claim to be a follower of Jesus. Now, some people can be a great way of trying to illustrate and be a person who bears evidence to Christianity and the truthfulness of it. But let me tell you something. If you're looking at other people and somehow hoping that's going to get you beyond your doubts. Don't miss this. Jesus welcomed him to examine himself. Don't make all your faith and trust and hope in all the disciples and what they thought or thought or whatever. He says, examine me. So notice the result of Jesus' invitation to examine him carefully in his, death, his life, his death, and resurrection. Look at verse 28 of John 20. Thomas, in looking at the evidence, the clear and compelling evidence of Jesus' resurrection, he did not hesitate to make the confession, verse 28, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Many a skeptic has examined the resurrection accounts of Jesus in the Bible, and they have come the full 180. They have come from a point of denial a point of complete doubt and have no confidence at all at Christianity, that many of them have been out to disprove it. And they have looked at the evidence and they have walked away and they have come to the point where they're at full devotion to Jesus Christ. I can list a number of them. I brought with me here, just as an illustration, the case for Christ, Lee Strobel, a journalist writing for the Chicago Tribune. He, his wife, came to Christ, her life was changed. He's like, come on, get off this stuff. He's, he's, he's annoyed with her. He says, okay, you think all that stuff is true? I'm out to prove it's not. So he goes around and asks a bunch of people questions, and guess what? You read the end of the book, he's got what? The case for Christ. 
He's convinced to change his life. Josh McDowell, more than a carpenter. You can go on and on. Frank Morrison, a lawyer, brilliant, out to disprove the resurrection accounts. Convinced at the end, he bends to the weight of the evidence and surrenders to Christ. C.S. Lewis, you name him, go down the list. Highly intelligent people following the evidence wherever it leads until he comes to the point where he says, if Jesus overcame death and if he won the victory over the forces of evil, then my friend, Jesus Christ indeed does have authority. He does have every right to demand our full allegiance and our full consecration to him. And that's where some people don't want to go. And that's why they stay at the, at the point of doubt and refuse to move forward. Some people, not everybody, but some people, that's the temptation. So rather than, and I would suggest to you, don't let doubt leave you at the point where you're saying, well, I do believe that Jesus is a Lord and he's a divine being. But I urge you, Examine carefully the scripture and the accounts of Jesus' resurrection even until you come to the point where you say, I'm going to follow the evidence as it leads me until you can say along with Thomas, my Lord and my God. I can see the fact that I must now what? Surrender my life to him. He is Lord and therefore I yield to him. He is my master. I'm compelled to serve him, to love him, and to give my all to him and to celebrate the fact that he is indeed God. No human being could ever have done what he has done. He is God in human flesh, and therefore he's worthy of my life and my worship, my all. That's the story of Thomas. That is the gospel applied to doubters. If that's where you are today, my friend, I pray you will follow that lead. Read the account of gospels carefully, prayerfully. Third point, I don't know if you're able to follow along, but uh, third point, I'll give you the, the uh, actual point here. Jesus extended forgiving, restoring grace to the disciple who failed and forgot the truth of the gospel. I love this too. John 21, just turn the page there. 1292. This is the account of Peter. Peter and his cousins were some of the earliest ones who three years earlier had responded to Jesus's call to follow him and so they followed him out of a life of fishing which is what they did for a living he said listen I'm going to call you I want you to follow me and I'll make you fishers of men and so Peter had left his fishing nets according to Matthew chapter 4 he left his fishing nets in order to follow Jesus and so over those three years Peter had become a follower of Jesus, and he had now begun to show that he was a sort of a leader among the followers of Jesus. And he was, during those years, struggling with some things in his heart. Every so often, he showed indications that he was rather self-confident. In today's terms, we would say he had very good self-esteem. And so he was self-assured, and he said for sure that he would lay down his life for Jesus. He would die for Jesus rather than turn his back from him. John chapter 13. But as you know, maybe you don't know, but as you know, if you know the scriptures, within less than 12 hours after making that self-assured statement, Peter panicked and fear welled up within his heart as he is standing there in the courtyard of the high priest where Jesus is now beginning this cross-examination in the middle of the night. 
And several are asking Peter, aren't you the guy that's one of his followers? And Peter denies that he is a follower of Jesus, not once and not twice. He denies it three times, as Jesus had predicted. And at that moment after his third denial, the text of Scripture says in Luke 22, that the Lord Jesus turned and looked at Peter by the fire. Can you imagine your eye catching the eye of the one you just denied that you even knew him? Saying earlier that you would give your life for him? Peter's heart was flooded with deep regret. And thereafter we read that he wept bitterly. Broken and ashamed, Peter, at that point, turned and he was nowhere in sight to get anywhere near Jesus and had no opportunity to ask forgiveness, to make amends to the one who he at one time called his Lord and Master. And so he carried a heavy load of guilt and shame as Jesus was taken away to be crucified. Now, fast forward a couple days. Peter hears the report from Mary Magdalene that the body of Jesus had been removed out of the tomb, John chapter 20, verse 2, and it's not clear where it is, so he runs there along with John. They run there and they look inside there, and the linen wrappings, he sees that laying there. He doesn't see the dead body. And what happens about that? We read that Peter remained unconvinced, and what does he do? Goes back to his house. He's still not convinced. He's still dealing with a heavy heart. He still has this sense of grief over realizing the horrible thing he had done to his master. It's unclear at that point if he would ever have the heavy burden of his shameful sin lifted from his guilty heart. I find it interesting that the only words recorded in Scripture of Peter after Jesus has been raised from the dead is found in John chapter 21, verse 3. After a period of time now, he has seen Jesus. They have had encounters with Jesus. There's been times where he's been in his presence. That's true. But never do we hear Peter saying anything until more than a week later, he says in verse 3, Hey guys, I'm going fishing. Now some of you, that gets you excited and pumped. I'm not one of those. But anyway, some people get excited when they say they're going fishing. Well, he's, I think he's saying it's an all-night-long marathon fishing time. I think at this point Peter is saying, I don't know that I can make this ministry stuff. I need to go out and earn some money. That's the way he made his living. So he and his buddies are out there all night long, and guess what? This is why I don't fish. Guess what? They didn't catch anything. The guys who were experts caught nothing. Not even one. I mean, how do you keep going at four in the morning? You didn't catch nothing all night long. I'm sorry. Okay. Jesus called these guys from the shore as the sun's coming up, and he says, hey, guys, put the net in on the other side, the right side of the boat. Now, that's probably to help them remember something that happened earlier, which I won't go into, but they've seen this happen before. Clearly, Jesus is demonstrating he is in control of these fish and this whole process, and so they bring up this net, and somebody took the time because they were so blown away with the number of fish, 153. What does that tell you? Eyewitness. 
not some made-up story. Somebody counted these crazy things, these smelly fish. And so, and so what does he say? Upon realizing at that moment that it was Jesus, Peter jumps in the water, which is typical of him. He doesn't hold back. He jumps in, swims ashore, and notice how Jesus deals with him. He welcomes him to a meal. You say, big deal, fish for breakfast. Yuck, uh, who wants that? The significance of breaking bread in that culture is he's saying, you're one with me. We're on good terms. I'm willing to deal with you as if you're one of mine, that we're on the same page here. We are, we are, got, we are in good relationship here. That's an amazing expression of grace he's showing to Peter. And then he takes Peter and says, okay, Peter, I want to talk to you. And he says this, the risen king of glory at that point applies the gospel to Peter in a way that was powerful. He says to Peter, listen, three times, he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? Each time Peter admitted that he did, and each time Jesus insisted, Peter, listen here, take your time, take your skills, and I want you to minister to the people of God. I want you to be useful in my kingdom. I want you to stop all this fishing. I want you to, to go back and be fishers of men again. Jesus wanted Peter to know that he was not to be defined by that failure. What was he doing? He was demonstrating saving grace. He was demonstrating the grace that is the essence of the gospel, is receiving unmerited favor. So Peter had nothing to offer Jesus to make right the wrong. And Jesus was trying to show that because he had successfully provided atonement for the sins of Peter, like, of people like Peter, people like you and me, who do things that we fully are ashamed of, things that we regret, things that we're embarrassed about, things that we wish nobody would ever know about. It is Jesus who's assuring him that God the Father had vindicated the payment that was made on that cross by raising Jesus from the dead, and he is now taking the moment that at that point, Jesus is saying, I want to apply the gospel to you, my friend, to you who have failed, to you who are carrying the guilt and the shame of making that unwise choice, that sinful choice. Abandon me. Turn your back on me. He reassures Peter that he was, his standing with Jesus was all on the basis of grace. With this threefold commission, Jesus was, Peter was confronted with this redemptive healing power of the gospel. Why do you think he repeated three times? I think to match right up with the what? With the three different times in which he denied him. He's trying to say, there's forgiveness for that. Now go and serve me. I died for sins like that. Now go in grace. That's what he's saying. You see, sinners like Peter, like us, who fail, we fall short. We find hope, we find cleansing, we find forgiveness, we find restoration in the finished work of cross, Christ, and not in our ability to be better people. David Pallison, a very wise biblical counselor, has written these incredible words. He says, left to ourselves, Sometimes we think we are either 
too good to need grace or we're too bad to receive it. My friend, grace is what makes us aware that sin is our deepest problem. Grace is what draws us out of our own pride and arrogant view of ourselves as being better than we really are, draws us into the reality we are not all that. We are people who have failed in numerous, incalculable ways. I can't even say the word. In ways we'll never be able to count all the ways we fail. Grace draws us into that awareness. And it's grace who, having made, made aware of that, woos us and then comforts us when we think that we've gone too far and that there's no hope for us, no rescue for us. That's where we welcome and find grace when we feel the weight of our sin. No wonder Peter wrote years later in the first epistle, in the first chapter of his first epistle, he writes and reflects on the fact that he was redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, he says, whom God raised from the dead so that his confidence so that his trust was not in his performance, his trust was not in his level of devotion to Christ because he knew he was up and down and all over the map. His confidence was not in that, but his hope was in God. My friend, he, he understood and got the gospel. The focus is not on us and our performance. It's on grace we receive in Jesus Christ. His devotion to Jesus was not out of a guilt or somehow a need to make spiritual restitution to a Savior that he had abandoned, his motivation to serve Jesus was what? Out of love. His desire to serve Christ was rooted in hope. He looked forward to the grace that would be brought to him and to every other true believer at the revelation of Jesus Christ one day at the final resurrection. My friend, because Jesus Christ lives, we have hope. Hope of being forgiven. Hope of being taught and having greater understanding so that we're not weighed down by discouragement, depression, and confusion. We have hope of being those who can indeed have our doubts answered and dealt with, resolved. We are people who, because Christ is alive, we have hope rooted in the grace of God to restore us and to use us and to work through us for his glory. Let's pray. Our Father, as we bow before you today, we thank you for providing to us in your word real people who need the gospel. We thank you for providing to us a real Savior who was born in human flesh, who lived a perfect life, who died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and raised again according to the scriptures. We thank you that Jesus Christ ministers the gospel to people who struggle. Lord, we struggle. 
Lord, all of us need the gospel. And I pray that you would take some of the truths that we've talked about today, Lord. I pray that you would apply them to the hearts of those who are here today. And they're here admitting that they're confused. They can't seem to make sense of your plan. And they're struggling with the cross. They're struggling with the whole idea of taking up their own cross and trying to understand how the gospel fits into their life. I pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes. May the scriptures give them clarity and convince them that your plan is a great plan. I pray, Lord, also for those who are here today filled with hope, I mean, with with, uh, doubt. And they're stuck there. And they're struggling. Lord, I pray that you would help them to not give in to making that the destination of their life. I pray that you would help them to move toward understanding truth and examining the clear evidence in the scriptures which point us to Christ. Father, also I pray for many of us, many of us, who are weighed down with our guilt, who are embarrassed and filled with shame, who say to ourselves ten times a day, I don't think Jesus could ever love me. I don't think I'll ever be fully loved by God because of all I've ever done. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help them to see what you did to Peter in bringing the gospel to him and showing him that it's not him that we find our hope. It is in Christ. It is not in our performance. It's in Jesus and him alone. I pray, Lord, that you would bring them to a sense of sweetness in your presence, a sense of celebration, of being amazed by grace and understanding how salvation is a free gift and we're enjoying that relationship we can have with you through Jesus' death and his resurrection. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.